Hello and welcome back to the Silicon Sasquatch podcast. This is Doug Bonham, editor for Silicon Sasquatch, hosting today. And here with me is... Uh, this is where you say your name. Oh, I have to do that part? <laughs> All right, well, I'm Nick. I'm Nick. I'm the guy who's uh, in the United States. Doug is in Japan. We are coming at you across nations, across oceans. Well, just one. To talk to you about maybe the most important news story of the week. Doug, what is it? This is the 15-year anniversary of Microsoft Xbox. The original Microsoft Xbox system was launched in November 2011 or 2001 in the United States. And now we have three different generations of Xbox. And we've seen... Well, actually, what was the point that you made the other day on our on our group chat? Our, our secret uh, hive of scum and villainy. It was... This is 15 years between the original Xbox and now. And it's 30 years between the launch of the Nintendo in America and now. And it's weird to think that the Microsoft Xbox has been around for, I guess, half the length that major video games have been back in the U.S. Yeah, it's like the perigee of video game development from through my lifetime, I guess. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to look at the arc from this tiny little front-loading VCR-like box of the NES to this massive hulking block of plastic and metal that was like a monument to bill gates hubris to the modern consoles we have now which are you know somewhere in the middle yeah it's it's definitely interesting to see the how the games industry has ebbed and flowed and i think you know we i'm working on an article a long feature article talking about how microsoft has influenced the games industry um ever since the launch of the xbox and even before it we can touch on that quickly as well but we wanted to talk about the original Xbox quickly because it was a very interesting point in games. Could possibly say it was the the very top of an era considering the competition at the time. But we wanted to talk about some of the best memories of that system, some of our favorite titles from that system, and then also touch a little bit on the impact that's had on what we play today and how we play today. Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, but first, uh, before we go into any games or history we got to talk about the elephant in the room which is the duke oh my god are we starting off with the showstopper we gotta start with the duke because if you can't talk about the xbox without talking about its Uh, asinine controller so actually let me let me rewind this back even further to get in my absolute favorite point from all this In, in researching my our feature article about microsoft and the xbox and its its gaming history um I have one sentence from uh from the Wikipedia article that I want to read to you. Can is this okay? Can I read you something? I think it's legal. Okay. So quote The Xbox was officially unveiled to the public by Gates, Bill Gates, and guest professional wrestler The Rock at CES two thousand one on January third, two thousand one. Remember that part where he broke an Xbox over Bill Gates' head? By God. They don't allow you to do that anymore in wrestling. It's a great heel turn try to keep people safer now but i think that's quite possibly the most 2001 thing ever bill gates and the rock yeah it was uh you know we've we've seen some questionable decisions about how to market new consoles since then there was the mtv unveiling of the xbox 360 oh man there was the giant enemy crab e3 ps3 thing that whole fiasco but the the rock Holds a special place in our hearts here at Silicon Sasquatch. I can only hope there is video footage of this, if only so that it can make its way to Giant Bomb's hands. I think it actually does oh, exist. It has to. Uh, if you Giant Bomb did a game tapes that had part of this unveiling. Oh, okay, on it. so if you're a pre- not to sound like a shill, but if you have a premium subscription, there you can watch. That's that. what I'm looking for. That's what I need to go find. That's the good stuff. So yeah, uh, that sets the scene for the Microsoft Xbox system being officially launched in. 2001 in november the date for launch was november 15th so we are past officially the date of xbox launch past the anniversary by a little bit but that's okay um other dates it was february 2002 in japan uh mark wildly successful there march 2002 in australia and also in the europe eu regions and this this Japan launch ties back in as we take a, a quick sidestep to get back to Nick's original uh, pet points. It ties in with the controller because 
Whew. Oh boy, the original Xbox controller is a thing. It's it's like several things crammed into one, and the end result is like holding a little baby console on your lap. Yeah. So the if you haven't remember, if you don't remember, if you perhaps are too young to remember, or if you didn't have an original Xbox, the 2001 launch console came out with a controller that was, I'd say, roughly the same size as a slim PS2. Uh, in terms of width, like width, in terms yeah, of, but we're not talking about the, in bulk. terms of depth, it was about the same size as the slim PS3. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about, remember that giant plastic bubble over the Xbox oh logo my God. that had no purpose? So the controller was rather large in, in one way it did set the shape. So having asymmetric and a pair of analog sticks, having four buttons on the front having two trigger controller or two triggers on the back D-pad, it did set the shape that even the Xbox One controller still follows. However, the way and the size and, and can, can I say the word girth? I was going to say that word. Oh. It just felt not right, but needed. It was so massive that e- even in 2001, 2002, internet, which was a much smaller, smaller place, um, the nickname The Duke kind of became widespread. Or if you were like me and heard about it, you know, maybe in 2004, 2005, somebody referenced the Duke. You're just like, okay, that that is a name that fits perfectly with what that was. Yeah. I mean, I heard that that's the internal word or name that Microsoft was using at some point. I'm not sure how if that if that came from the public or vice versa. But it says a lot that that controller was so iconic that it wasn't just called the original Xbox controller. It's it's yo, it's It's got a name. It's it's the Duke. No other controller has that distinction for better or so worse. compared with other consoles at the time and compared with well, what was what was leading in versus this the the playstation 2 had already been launched the dreamcast had already been sunk so this was a controller that actually took good ideas from both having a pair of triggers like actual triggers on the back coming from the dreamcast but having a pair of sticks from that was made famous on the dualshock also the original duke had a six button layout on the front and I mean, it's a good idea in theory, but as somebody who did try and play Halo once or twice with the Duke, having that white and black button up there at the top was not good. And then also you're looking at the... So subsequently, after it was realized that the Duke was too big even for American hands, they Microsoft created a second generation of the controller that was called the Controller S. S for smaller. And... This was also partially done as part of Microsoft's initiative to push the console for Japan, as at the time, of course, Japan was a primary market for the games and for games consoles. And they realized if, if this controller is too big for media American mitts, then there's no way in hell it's going to fly in Japan. Ironically, the, the internal code name for the controller S is Akebono, which is the name of a sumo wrestler. So you can draw the jokes as you want to there. Even the controller S, which actually bears a very strong resemblance to the 360 controller and the Xbox One controller, it still kept these white and black buttons, and it put it kind of directly to the right of where the analog stick is. And in some games, like um, anything that required six buttons on the front, like a fighting game, for example, mm-hmm. or a couple of different games like uh, NBA Street was one that I had on the Xbox at the time, it, it requires you to play with you know, triggers and all six buttons. On the PlayStation, it used R1, L1, and R2, L2. But with the white and black buttons, they are in a very bad, like, below the A button. That's it's not an easy place to reach. And they were kind of sunken into the controller. So if you're yeah. trying to play, like, a fighting game like Dead or Alive and hit those buttons the same way you would the other face buttons, it was not easy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fair to say there were some big learning or growing pains for Xbox with this thing. Um, the 360 controller, I think, is a really good uh, counterpoint to that, where you look at what they did there by moving, dropping the black and white buttons and putting the bumpers on in front of the triggers. Yep. I think that that's kind of become the de facto controller style since then, and now every, pretty much every console controller resembles that very directly. Well, it seems like with the 360, they, they took that idea from um, Sony and the PlayStation, the DualShocks, where it had the the four buttons on the on the top instead of just triggers, 
except they kept the triggers and added on the bumpers, what they call right bumper, left bumper. Right. And then you see the PlayStation 4 pad comes out, and instead of having the this kind of softer R2, L2 buttons that they did previously, it is more like a full throw of a trigger now with the PlayStation 4 DualShock. So in the great pantheon of game consoles, and maybe this is too far ahead, but let's say just in terms of controllers, uh, where would you place the original Xbox controller in terms of usability, quality, etc.? Like, is this an N64 controller, plus or minus? Are we talking the Duke? We're talking the Duke. Um, I would say it is just above... If we're putting the bottom of the barrel as N64 controller, in terms of OEM controllers for systems, I'm putting the N64 controller at the bottom because it's novel, but not very flexible usable at least you can get at both the d-pad and analog stick at the same time with the duke but in terms of the size is not great and also what's what's forgotten sometimes is the but the original four color buttons the front face buttons on the duke are very weirdly shaped and very weirdly spaced oh yeah they were kind of ovaloid weren't they they were little jelly beans and they did not have much throw on them either Mm -hmm. now i think the, the jelly bean kind of texture stayed with the controller S, but at least they were a regular size and kind of had a the same sort of throw as a DualShock would have. Yeah, that was a weird controller to use because like that was back in the era as well where um, I think a lot of the consoles, at least Sony and Microsoft, had pressure sensitive buttons on their controllers, but they didn't really tell you ever that you needed them until so you played one of the few games where that was a relevant thing. Um, trying to think of what fits that bill. I think the classic example for, again, on a PlayStation side, unfortunately, but uh, Metal Gear Solid 2, I think, That's used it. the pressure yeah. sensitivity. And I believe both Namco and um, the Gran Turismo games made use of pressure sensitivity as well, but it, was in a, it, was, it wasn't exactly easy to do. Imagine using a, a DualShock and having to use that as an analog trigger. This isn't... Mm, mm, not very easy. I loved it with Metal Gear maybe unintentionally because like uh what i remember using it for was the fire button if you let off of it slowly you could lower your gun without firing it so you could like hold the button to like aim your gun at someone and tell them to freeze but then Mm. if you were gradual enough and letting off the trigger you wouldn't kill them but if you were a little too fast and it was really hard to get this right you might just blast their head off and uh that led to some unintentional uh comedic moments for me playing mgs2 exactly Let's uh, talk about some games, maybe. Uh, I, I, I heard that there was a game that came out with this console that uh, maybe had a bigger impact than others. Well, I joked about starting with the showstopper when we talk about the Duke, but you really, I mean, the Halo, Halo launched with the Xbox, period, full stop. I mean, the Xbox was a Halo box for a long time. Yeah, it was more like Halo launched with the Xbox. Exactly. Yeah, that was a that was a big deal. That game is still kind of a big deal somehow. It's it is become Microsoft's flagship property, and without a doubt set the trend. Because what what's the only other major console first person shooter you can think of before Halo, GoldenEye and Perfect Dark, perhaps? Uh, yeah, I think Red Faction maybe came out around then, but that's not really. Nobody talks about that anymore. Except yeah, Red, Red Faction also came out on, was on the PlayStation, but it, it never had the same sort of impact that Halo did. Right. Halo really, really shifted things from, I mean, even even games like um, Medal of Honor were out on the PlayStation 2. Oh, yeah. On the PlayStation and PlayStation 2. But they weren't Halo. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, first-person shooters were not as big of a deal as from before Halo and after Halo. The console and what it means in America, what type of games are popular, it's a completely different question and completely different discussion before and after Halo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know what I think the difference was? Uh, it's just the fact that there's a LAN port on the back of the Xbox. So you could play yes. local area network games, and suddenly you weren't just playing four players crowded around a split-screen TV of GoldenEye. You could do 16-player Halo matches if you got enough friends together and, like, lugged some TVs into the same area. And, man, we sure did a lot of that for, like, years on end. Yeah. I remember in high school, not even in college, but in high school, um, I had an Xbox. One of our good friends 
also had an Xbox with Halo. And what we did was we we went over to Fry's Electronics nearby, got a got the LAN cable you needed to hook the two consoles up, and we had four people in in my bedroom and four people in my living room at my old house when I where we lived in when I was in high school. And so we had four people on a big screen TV in one room, and then we stretched the cable down the hallway and went to the other room and had four people in there. Yeah, uh, and that was pretty fun, right? Like, oh that. my god! <laughs> in in a world where online games were exclusively the realm of PC players, okay, Sega Net too, but realistically PC players, because otherwise the the Dreamcast was predominantly on fifty six k modems. Let's pour one out for Quake Three on Dreamcast. Oh my god! Pour one out for that one, but yeah, like this this gave you on a console what PC players were talking about on forums. And, and laughing at console players for oh haha you can't do this because you don't have the hardware to do it and we have you know high speed broadband internet so we can do this and it gave you that option it was so amazing not just that uh you know i came from a pc gaming background pretty heavily at that point i think around that time uh i don't know if i quite discovered counter-strike but i've been playing a lot of shooters on pc and even like doing some uh you know tcp ip games of quake and doom in the past and uh Nothing I'd ever played was quite like getting friends together to play Halo. And partly, I think it was partly the combination of the local multiplayer that's so fun, like the trash talking and the strategizing, combined mm-hmm. with the like the networked play, where you could have these larger games and these more chaotic games. And it was just a, like a true phenomenon. I remember all through high school organizing events with friends. Like I got an Xbox and multiple controllers just for Halo. Like I saved up for that, and it was just like my focus for a couple of years. Yeah, when for me, I shifted from having a Dreamcast to getting an Xbox and using that as my primary system. And after that, it became, you know, I wasn't on board with Halo right away, but Halo and a couple other controllers were a requirement because otherwise, you know, there's you know, we're putting these these LAN parties together to play Halo in high school. And then then when college started, do you <laughs> before Xbox Live really got hooked in or before Halo 2 came out and integrated Xbox Live online it was all about hooking into your uh your college dorm LAN network and playing against people in other dorms oh, yeah. and getting eight players or 16 players up together to play Halo it was amazing so a little bit of history here uh Doug and I went to college at the same time and actually lived in the same dorm complex yep and i can't remember if it was you or Aaron or both, but we all lived in the same basic dorm area. And I remember finding a couple network games of Halo 1 on our, our dorm network. And uh, we later realized that we've been playing these games together before we even like actually met. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we fully like met and became friends sophomore year, second year of university. And mm-hmm. But I, I did remember hearing that you lived... I think Aaron and I lived in the same dorm hall. So I lived on a floor above and he lived on the, the first floor and you lived in the other wing. Like you lived in another section of it. Right. Yeah. So Aaron and I, we would play games together and we would play Halo and such. But I think also whenever we would put in the land to try and get other dorms or try to find games of Halo, it was, I think we ran into your, you and a few other people in your side a few times. Yeah. It's <laughs> amazing. It was, it was one of the first experiences we had with, or certainly one of the first experiences I had with uh, that sort of broadband multiplayer game. And if you could have a couple people in your dorm and play against them, you know, a couple rooms down or play against people from a little further away, it was just, a, it was a lot of fun to get in there and, you know, have that experience. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think the, the legacy of this game is pretty obvious. Like it had a very clear impact on how other console and even PC first person shooters were designed uh, it kind of set the model of what a shooter needs to offer in terms of single and, and multiplayer content to be viable in the market. And uh, it wasn't really until Call of Duty 4 uh, hit in 2008, or 2007, I mean, uh, that the model started to shift a bit. But um, yeah, even today, like Halo's still a big property for a reason. And uh, But I think the biggest hallmark of its legacy is you look at Xbox Live as a service, Yep. And you look at how that was so clearly tailor-made to fit and cater to Halo as uh, kind of a platform for itself. Like, it went from just online, like, only local area 
multiplayer in Halo 1 to Xbox Live multiplayer and co-op in Halo 2, the Forge mode in Halo 3, which allowed people to create and share levels in real time, all kinds of stuff like that that, you know, you'd later see other games adopt from anything from um, Call of Duty to Little Big Planet have borrowed heavily from the series. So Yep. To make sure we have our timeline aligned, uh, Xbox Live, their online service, which remains to this date as their online service, launched in 2002, one year after the system launched. Unfortunately, Halo did not get updated, patched, uh, re-released, whatever you want to say, to take advantage of Xbox Live. So we were left waiting until 2004 when Halo 2 was launched that to then have a, a console title to play online. But you can tell that Xbox Live was built for Halo and Halo 2 was definitely built for Xbox Live. Oh yeah, it was very clearly like a co-marketing campaign on their part. Like Halo 2 was a huge push for Xbox Live. Um, but you know, and this is kind of a weird little history lesson for anyone out there who wasn't you know, of a certain age when Halo was a thing. <laughs> uh, but there was a kind of cottage industry of uh, Xbox tunneling apps to basically create a virtual uh, LAN to play Halo with people all over the world. And uh, I played around with those things quite a bit in college, trying to just find random games with people uh, to try and get large Halo games going. The latency was terrible. They dropped connections all the time, but we stuck with it because it was just such an amazing concept to be able to take a console and connect to random other people online to compete against them. Of course, now that's like old hat, but uh, that was kind of a, a big eye-opener for me. Yeah, I think I remember hearing about that, and I know definitely people that would use the tunneling services and get Halo working as an, a true online game. It was basically hacking the LAN capability to trick it into thinking you were playing on a local network with somebody who could be hundreds of miles away. Uh, on a fun related note, I just remembered, uh, so Splinter Cell Chaos Theory's multiplayer servers went down a while ago, but there's, I, I just learned a thriving community of people who are trying to preserve that online experience by doing basically the exact same thing, creating oh, a awesome. tunneling service. Yeah. And that's another game that I think was on the original Xbox as well. And that was a yep. hell of a game to play online. Yeah, that was, that was one of the games it had, um, asymmetrical, didn't it? That's what it lived off of, correct? Yeah, I think it was the Spies versus Mercenaries mode. Yeah, that was one of the first... I mean, after Halo... Halo came out, and, and that's a game, a shooting game, where everybody's very similarly specced. Everybody is a Spartan and has the same sort of weapons. You can change which weapons you're holding, but that doesn't really change much about how you fundamentally play the game. But Spies versus Mercs in Splinter Cell... You know, the mercenaries are heavily armed, the spies are not, and are trying to play stealthily, and that sort of, like, the concept or how to how to make that work is still so fascinating. Absolutely. So, speaking of Xbox games in general, I was thinking we could spend a little time maybe talking about a few of the most mm -hmm. uh, landmark or memorable ones that we played. Yep. So, of course, Blink's the Time Sleeper is the true <laughs> classic here. Actually, I never played it, but that was a, one of the few exclusives for the console. Oh, there's there's a whole there's a whole era on the original Xbox of Microsoft. It felt like they had to do a ton of different a certain things to be a first party OEM. You know, you, you saw Sony, they have their platform, they have their wave of first party games. Nintendo has a wave of first party games. Microsoft simply wanted to emulate that and have well we have a platformer, we have a sports game, we have you know, shooting game, we have a racing game. And some of those are, some of those were much more success, successful than others. Um, Blinks the Time Sweeper was not one of those. <laughs> Brute Force was not one of those. The Jet Force Gemini of the Xbox. Ugh. Fortunately for Microsoft, early on, they'd signed a deal with the now third party, now tied from or untied from their system, Sega, which they also hoped would get them to be get some credibility in Japan and, and be a way to enter the Japanese market. But my console, so the, the Xbox I bought, which I believe is the same system package you had, Nick, mm -hmm. it was the Controller S and the two-pack of Sega GT 2001 and Jet Set Radio Future. Oh, yeah. And that, was, that was one good game in that package, but that was a hell of a game. And it was... It was, it was 
85% of a good game from Jet Set Radio Future and 15% of a good game from Sega GT. Exactly. Now, I played through all of Sega GT because I'm a very good little Gran Turismo style racing game fanboy, but and it was fun to play a racing game with those triggers. I think that was probably the first one I did. And some of the modification stuff they had in that game I remember being very interesting or the fact that it, it showed your car in a virtual garage. But a lot of other things about that racing game are very i think we've already spent enough time on it yeah that's a game that time will forget but but jet set radio jet set radio future i i I love the original game i love jet set radio jet grind radio on dreamcast but the controls going back to it now on the emulated versions that came out on ps3 and, and xbox 360 it doesn't control well doesn't control terribly well but jet set radio future it not only allowed you to do a little bit more like having tricks and changing those up when you're on uh, rails, it also like it handled and it simplified also graffiti and spraying, but the handling and the the control you had over your characters was just so much better. Not to mention the soundtrack is so good. Uh, That's both games, honestly. But yeah, Jet Set Radio Future was put those all of those tracks together and it's an amazing amazing pair of soundtracks but yeah it, you would be hard you it would it would be difficult to pick um which one i prefer more honestly for me yeah. uh i actually never owned a dreamcast until after i got an xbox so jet set radio future is my first exposure to that series and uh i did go back and play jet grind radio or jet set radio as it was known in japan um a little bit later, like on the PS3, uh, on one of those ports Doug talked about. And uh, yeah, for my money, Jet Set Radio Future was just like a smart sequel that kept the tone and really kind of even the majority of the, the gameplay intact, but uh, presented it in a way that was just so stylish and colorful in a way that I hadn't seen on a console before. Like maybe Beautiful Joe on GameCube comes close in terms yep. of capturing that crazy cell shaded action, but... Um, it was really just, you know, more than anything, the soundtrack, I think, was such a crucial part of the tone of that game. And there just weren't other games out there that I was aware of that were really taking risks like that. Yeah, Jet, Jet Set Radio Future has a little bit different color palette, and the, the tones are a little bit different. Um, but it has just as much style, and like you said, it retained all the good parts and improved on the weaknesses from the original game. And that does exactly what a good sequel should. And I really wish they make a third one. Oh, yeah. I, I really, really wish they make a third one. So oh. there's another game I wanted to ask you about. And I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying that I tried very, very hard to love this game on multiple consoles and platforms. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Doug, were you a Morrowind fan? I was ne- I didn't get into that on Xbox, no. Yeah, okay. We can move on then. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron's not here. and We don't have any of the other... Uh, Elder Scrolls fanboys in the room today, so we don't yeah. have to t- touch on that much. But it was it was notable in that the game came out and became fairly popular, which really more than anything seeded. Um, what's the next one that came out on 360 that I'm forgetting Oblivion? the title of? Oblivion, yes, because Oblivion was so many people's jam in the first year of the Xbox 360, and that almost seemingly came out of nowhere, but the seeds were planted with having Morrowind on the Xbox. Yeah. All I remember about Morrowind, well, three things. Uh, Mud was everywhere, giant bugs you could ride on, and everyone I know who played it was obsessed with it. I knew people had spent hundreds of hours exploring Morrowind, and I think that what really drew them in was the sheer scope of that game. I don't think there had ever been a console RPG with the landmass or the number of cities or the number of quests in in it that Morrowind had. It just yep. promised something gigantic out there to explore. And I think that really uh, resonated with a lot of people. Uh, I, I fell into the series head over, you know, head over heels, basically, with Oblivion. I think that was my first 100% game on Xbox 360. Wow. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I loved it. But uh, it was a lot more narrow of a game. It was a lot more tightly focused. And that allowed me to finish it, but I can totally respect why people look at Morrowind with a bit more of a, uh, you know, it's not about what's in the package. It's about what it represents, I think, yep. for a lot of people. And we can shift from a questionable RPG or RPG-ish thing on in Morrowind 
how about a couple RPGs that were actually really good? Um, the two major Bioware games on the Xbox, Knights of the Old Republic and Jade Empire. Oh, you can take these. <laughs> I have uh, controversial opinions about KOTOR. I didn't play through all of it. So also when I bought my or when I got my Xbox for Christmas, it was a package that I think my parents had purchased at Hollywood Video. All right, crazy. And it also included a coupon for, I think, 10 or 20 free rentals throughout the course of a year. Whoa. So and it was actually really great because it gave high school broke ass me a good chance to go through and try a lot of different games. And one of the ones I remember renting once and going, I, I could get more into this if I really wanted to put the time in was KOTOR. And I know that's kind of uh, sacrilege because so many people hold that game in such high esteem. It didn't grab me and I was a high school kid. So I, I think my short attention span could be blamed um, blame for that. But when Jade Empire came out, I remember being much more into the aesthetic and the idea of a, you know, a game that steals from every different major Chinese kung fu film and, and classic film, and also did it with a much more of an action focus. Whereas uh, Kotor was much more about setting up your turns and, and playing it very, very uh, deliberately. I think I remember watching you play some Jade Empire um, in college. That's like the one time I saw that game. Yeah, and. It really like it was a prototype for what Mass Effect became. Now Mass Effect doing that with guns instead of kung fu, but it that whole RPG, but the combat is not turn based and turn or boring, and that combination then is what proved to be so popular with the Mass Effect games and the Dragon Age games in the later generation. But yeah, Jade Empire, the the main character is kind of blah, which also I think they learned from, but the storyline and everything else and, and being such a love letter to Chinese films and Chinese cinema. Uh, one of our friends basically told me at the time that this stole from every single different game or every <laughs> different, every different film. It's like, Oh, this, this storyline or this character's from here, this character's from here, this story's from here. So it was a real pastiche of Kung Fu films and Chinese martial arts films of all kinds, but it did it really well. You can look at Mass Effect and point out all the ways they stole from 70s sci-fi, from Star Trek. Oh my Trek. god, yeah, so much. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of anime as well, like the space opera style and the space opera stuff it stole from as well. Yeah. Um, but Jade Empire also started playing with a bit of a morality system. Both KOTOR, KOTOR was the first one to really introduce it. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's... I feel bad that I never played Jade Empire, but my experience with Knights of the Old Republic was just so negative that I wrote off Bioware for a very long time. Mm. And it wasn't until Mass Effect that I gave them another chance. And now I play pretty much everything they put out because I'm a sucker for their formula yeah. uh, for the most part. But um, yeah, you know, there's there's one other RPG uh, on that console that I really think of fondly. And you might appreciate this too as a former Dreamcast uh, enthusiast. Oh, uh, I was one of the few owners and subscribers to Fantasy Star Online on Xbox. And wow yeah i <laughs> i played a lot of that game with a few friends when i was in high school wow so I, I know all about you know walking around in weird social areas and trying to type to people with on a controller and how much fun that was <laughs> uh, i actually don't remember the details super well but i remember just thinking it was really cool to be able to play like a multiplayer game rpg with friends online using a controller like that was kind of a revelation at the time and considering how much I know you have loved Diablo-style action RPGs, I can definitely see that being right up your alley as well. Oh yeah, they're completely my jam, which is why I like that game a lot. Man, that that is a game that definitely... like it, The original Fantasy Star Online came out kind of just before the Dreamcast was killed. And it also had the unfortunate problem of being on the Dreamcast, which itself had a phone modem instead of a broadband modem. But by the time the Xbox came out, it was still a little bit rare for broadbands and, and for cable modems to be widespread. But people who were that invested in games had that setup. And, oh man, it, it's a major improvement in gameplay performance versus 56K. And I think that would have flourished on a, a system like the Xbox if it had been launched the right time. 
even even with a, a bit of an improvement, it probably would have been a killer thing on the Xbox 360 as well. Oh, absolutely. I think the 360 was when they really started to explore putting MMORPGs on their console. Yep. And it feels like that would have been a shoe in if they just, you know, brought over, was it version 2 or 3 at the time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it would have been a massive, massive sales hit if they had, even if the, even if the concept had just been pushed back to the Xbox 360. Mm-hmm. Considering it came out on the Dreamcast, it's pretty, very, very ahead of its time. For sure. Uh, oh, there's one RPG we forgot uh, as well. Which is kind of a big one. Uh, the original Fable. Yes. The game Speaking... where you could fart on NPCs. <laughs> oh, the British. The the British subsets of humor sometimes astound me. Um, but yeah, the uh, Fable made by Peter Molyneux and his team at Lionhead. Um, that thing was a... that The original Fable did not hook me, but Fable 2. Oh, yeah. Fable 2 was a monster. That game... So back in the early days of this website, that game was all we were playing for about a month. Uh, Aaron yeah. and I and Doug were just swept up in that game like crazy. And I don't think, I know, I think Doug, you and Aaron liked the original Fable. Is that I right? I didn't play it very much. Okay. Um, um, I, I think I, Aaron I never, did. I never owned the original Fable, and I think I played it with a friend for a little bit. So like okay. I know, I know one of our good friends from high school and from college he was all about Fable, but. I didn't get as caught up into into the original one, but Fable Two, Fable Two was like I got caught up in the story for Fable Two as well. Me too. It was a really interesting way to unfold the narrative, the way they did yeah. things there. It was one of the first times I'd played a game where they did that. Yeah, and mor- morality I think was factored in in a way that other RPGs didn't quite do the same way. Yeah, I remember the, like you know this is spoiler for an eight year old game now, but. Um, at the end, you have a choice on whether or not to kill the bad guy who's like talking to you. And if you hesitate too long and let them keep talking, uh, the char- character played by uh, Stephen Fry, I think, will just shoot him in the face and walk away and be like, oh, I'm sorry, were you listening to them? <laughs> just fun little twists like that. It was a very uh, bizarre little game and packed with fun achievements. But yeah, I digress. We're talking about a second console here, not the original Xbox. Yeah. No, the original Fable on the original Xbox was, it was def, it was it was a gorgeous game at the time. It was packed full of a, a huge world as well at the time, and the the interactivity and the things they tried with the combat system as well were very interesting. Absolutely, I think uh, it's a good example of the Xbox taking some big risks, and. Uh, that game didn't fully succeed. I think it was pretty deeply flawed. I remember not really liking it by the time I finished it. But like I, like we said, with Fable 2, the series really kind of uh, blossomed into something much more compelling. Yeah. Well, Fable 1 suffered from Molyneux disease, and then I'm, I'm sure at some point they just had to get it out. So the promises and, and what sort of targets they were shooting for did not come to fruition, but you could see how, just how ambitious they were trying to be even on the next box game. For sure. I was going to shift gears and get into one of my absolute favorite games of all time and one of the best online experiences I've ever had with games. Lay it on me. And that was uh, Project Gotham Racing 2 on the Xbox. You mean the original Geometry Wars that came with the racing game? <laughs> no, this was this was far, far better than just that. So it it's... Um, much more focused on racing on streets than Forza Horizon 3 is, but the feel is, and the sensation, it's a direct spiritual successor to Project Gotham 2, I think. Oh yeah, I played PGR 2 as well. I really liked it. It did. It had a great swath of cars, it had a great different uh, variety of cars available, and the streets and the cities that they had were numerous and very well done. And it they originally started this um, bizarre creations started that series as Metropolis Street Racer on the Dreamcast. They were huh. purchased by Microsoft, or at least they tied up with Microsoft and made PGR, which came out on the original as a launch title for Xbox. But PGR two took both titles and made it so much better. Hmm. I didn't know they started out with a Dreamcast game, but that's kind of interesting. Yep. Yep. It feels like was, the Xbox uh, was the home for wayward Dreamcast titles. It definitely was. Actually, the the research I was doing 
um, it pointed towards a rumor that the Dreamcast may have been backwards compatible, or the um, Dreamcast games may have become backwards compatible on Xbox at a time, but there was a haggling about uh, SegaNet and its capability, whether mm. they would make that backwards compatible or not. That would have been something. Like, what a crazy news story that would have been to be like, oh, by the way, your Xbox can play Dreamcast games, so get your C-Man on. <laughs> yeah, the Project Gotham, so not just the game and not just the racing, but that was a game that came out 2003, and it was still popular in 2004 when I started college. And I remember spending, like, five, six, seven-hour play sessions playing it online with uh, friends on a forum that I'm on and the the time would go such that you would start playing at one point and have people from New Zealand or from Australia play and then they would go to bed and the uh, Europeans would wake up and we'd have Brits and uh, Brits and Europeans on with us <laughs> and just like you keep the room of the, you keep the eight player room going and the the crowd would shift you know people would dip in and dip out but you know it was it was just so much fun it was a great social chat room while also driving cars. That's probably the first racing game that really even offered something like that, right? Definitely. Not just the lobby options, but being able to 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 do that period. Yeah, it was it was definitely one of the first games to allow for that. Yeah. I look at like the current trend in racing games. I mean, I haven't played the latest Gran Turismo or anything, but I look at Forza, for example. Mm -hmm. And how heavily that game is leaned into social features, both real time and asynchronous. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty clear to me where that through line comes from. Yeah, like PGR, I remember mostly for the online features, not so much for the racing, which was good. Yeah, I mean the Kudo system was almost a precursor to Burnout, even I think. Mm. Although maybe Burnout came first, I can't remember. No, uh, it, the Kudos started on the Dreamcast version, so it's definitely a precursor to Burnout. What they've done. Oh, okay, cool. Well, cool. It's nice to know that PGR inspired what is actually the best racing game on the Xbox, Burnout 3 Takedown. <laughs> it's apples and oranges. They're both amazing games, but Burnout 3 is maybe like my favorite game on that console. Uh, I know it was multi-platform, but I always think of that as an Xbox series first because it looked the best on there. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, I know Aaron is a huge fan of that too. We, we've talked at length about what the best Burnout game is. I know there's a little bit of controversy around this, but I still throw my hat in with Burnout 3. Yeah, I think I think you you and Aaron maybe are the ones on that side. I think Tyler would definitely be on Burnout Paradise. I respect Burnout Paradise, but it just it didn't have the flow I was looking for. <laughs> I don't know that, that that console was so weird. It had so many different kinds of games. Like I remember playing things like the, my first ever Panzer Dragoon game was Panzer Dragoon Orda, which is one of Sega's yep. strange on rails shooter series that did really really well. Uh, in terms of building up a cult following on, I think originally the Saturn and then on the yeah. Dreamcast, but uh, such a cool, strange story told with like beautiful visuals, really kind of tricky, replayable uh, shooting sequences, very fun, odd game, unlike anything I've played before. And also Ninja Gaiden, maybe the hardest game I've beaten. Uh, Team Ninja's kind of triumphant return to making action games that were super great. Unfortunately, that was the last great action game they ever made too but uh hell of a game i remember just agonizing over that first boss fight trying forever to get past it and then feeling so much relief and then level two started and it was just one <laughs> grind after another but i beat that game and i stand by that that game was awesome as hell it was just maybe a little too hard for most people yeah there's a certain point where you really have to be incredibly strong in combos and incredibly good at all that to to make the most of Ninja Gaiden, and I never really got to that point, unfortunately, but I definitely tried, because I had Ninja Gaiden Black, the one that came out as a director's cut, I think a year or so after the original one, and I, oh, oh, that game was a rough one. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I... But it was it was so tight, it was so, it w it's almost still the benchmark for that sort of action game. Yeah, it, it really, I think, redefined the difficult uh, character action platformer. I think Devil May Cry may have come out before it, but uh, in terms of like just precision and technicality and punishment, I think uh, Ninja Gaiden really inspired pretty much everything Platinum Games put out. For example, I think draws a lot yep. from that Ninja yep. Gaiden. Yeah, I think I think even okay, Devil May Cry did it first, and we also have God of War over here, kind of 
making looking like it tries to do it. But Ninja Gaiden definitely did that action game best. Absolutely. Um, we're I know we've been talking at length about a lot of different games. Uh, are there any other ones you wanted to mention? Uh, before I really got into Xbox Live, uh, the the MotoGP games, MotoGP one and two and three that came out on Xbox. Um, at the time, it was a license that was one developer on Xbox and one developer on PS2. And their first title was actually one of the demos that you got with Xbox Live. So, Or it was one of the very first Xbox Live capable games, which is kind of oddball. Like for an American, this type of motorcycle racing is not really a... Uh, it's not really what we are, what's popular in the U.S., but it became a little popular there because it's another really, really tight racing game. Like controls incredibly well, very fast and very action-packed. And I remember loving the second one the most because it was also precise. It had an interesting mix because of the season and what was available in that racing, that real racing season. But also, you could create your own bike and and some liveries and some, uh, you know alter the designs a little bit so you could have some fun with how your bike looked my favorite thing about moto gp is that it was the game that got my dad to pay for my xbox live account because he liked it so much ah. <laughs> so that also meant he was guarding the xbox a fair bit but it was worth the price <laughs> yep there's a lot of other great stuff that came out in that generation the interesting part was something this was one of the last generations where some third-party games only came out on one system or the other so like grand theft auto 3 was originally on playstation 2 but a a kind of weaker version came out on on the Xbox at a later date. Same with Vice City. I don't think and and San Andreas as well, I mm-hmm. believe. But there were a couple other uh, third party games that came, or most other ones came to both. Like you know, EA Sports, who avoided the Dreamcast, um, came back in with with Microsoft, and I believe even jumped onto Xbox Live earlier than they did online for PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And having those games available like you mentioned earlier like the best version was often on the xbox because that thing was there's a reason we joke about how big the system is but for all that size and girth it definitely had the power that sometimes the playstation 2 either lacked or was harder to ring out of the playstation 2 i think it had geforce 3 in it which is laughable now but uh beat the hell out of anything the cell or emotion engine could process was emotion two or three yeah i remember Mm, okay yeah whatever the ps2 had this could do better yeah uh so you got the best versions of like prince of persia the sands of time beyond good and evil and psychonauts all on this console yeah psychonauts we were looking that up before the show started you said um psychonauts was a not a console exclusive on xbox but it was first on xbox it was yeah the ps2 version came out a few months later according to wikipedia and i remember just being like maybe the only guy in line to get that game on xbox when it came out (laughs) yeah that that was i mean those were great all that was was a fantastic time and it was interesting because they were still learning about some quality of life features that we now take for granted but that was the last generation before they could do patches or anything else on the on the console game so sometimes they would get delayed and you had to wait for it but it was it was often worth it it really was it was a you know, it's it's weird to look back on now as kind of a relic of a bygone era. I think that the last Xbox games started to come out maybe like mid-2005, late-2005, because the Xbox 360 came out that year, just four years after the Xbox launched. So yep. it was kind of a, you know, not as brief a life as the Dreamcast had, rest in peace Dreamcast, but like still very short by console standards. Yeah, I'm, I'm pouring one out for the Dreamcast as we speak. You do that every day. Oh, oh yeah, hey. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Pour one out for the Dreamcast every day. Um, but yeah, the the Xbox, it was an interesting thing because you can tell it, was a, it wasn't just a work in progress. It was a plan. It was kind of a long-term idea. And it maybe, it wasn't sent to fail, but it was sent with um, the expectation that we're here to learn and here to practice as a company instead of make a product that we're definitely sure is going to do well. Now, I think Microsoft being an American company, they could leverage a lot of the American developers. Like, it's maybe easier for them to leverage an EA Sports, for example, and perhaps take up the role that Sega had before, well, through the Genesis, when Sega of America was a lot stronger. And so they would have that American corporate tie-in with Sega versus now with Microsoft, they were an American company. So it's, it's much simpler, straightforward to get the business done. 
but I'm, I guarantee and I'm sure, and I, I expound on this much more in, in the article I was writing, I think Microsoft saw games as a future, and I think Microsoft saw games as a way to get a product out there for end users, for customers, and not just business, or not just software. And I'm sure that the original Xbox was not sent to die. It was just sent to be a first wave, sent to be a vanguard, and that the real movement and the real pressure would come from the Xbox 360. And whether they intended it or not, it worked absolutely perfectly. I think you got it spot on. Like I, I like to think of the original Xbox in hindsight as kind of a Trojan horse, where yep, yep. it looked like a console on the outside, like your typical games console, played DVDs, that's cool. But it packed some things inside that were kind of experimental. You know, the built-in local area network port, the built-in hard drive in every console. We haven't even mentioned the hard drive. Yeah. And that allowed them to actually do patches. I think Halo 2 had some patches in it that came with like map packs. And uh, Project Gotham 2 had DLC. Yeah. It was really kind of the first console to do a lot of these experimental things and to see what stuck. The first, I think, the first four pay online service at the console level. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sega Net. Oh, right. I can't, mm, I can't remember if that was pay or not, but I mean, it was even more experimental than Xbox Live was. True. I mean, I guess, you know, if you want to go really split hairs, uh, Nintendo had that satellite paid service for the Super Nintendo, but yeah, that's all weird stuff. Um, but but this was the real mainstream push. Like Xbox Live was where it really started as a mainstream product. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they were able to do all of that and they were able to take those risks because Microsoft wasn't going to lose their entire company if they fail. You know, we still have office team pumping out hundreds of millions of dollars every year and we still have our our main operating system business doing so well we can take a lark on the on games we can take a lark on zune hi spencer (laughs) we can we can try these things that would get the microsoft name to be more than just windows and office products yeah and you know in that regard regardless of whether or not the console is selling as well to its competitors at a given time or whether or not it's uh, competing on graphics, on game library. There's no question that the Xbox is a household name now. It's a big deal. It's a real player. And, um, you know, it's it's a testament to, <laughs> I guess, the, the raw, unbridled power of throwing a shit ton of money at a problem. <laughs> well, it's, it's not throwing a, a ton of money at a problem. It's making an investment in a long-term product that will pay dividends in... Again, that the model that consoles use is you sell them the the razor for cheap and or you sell them the shaver for cheap and they buy the blades. And so Microsoft makes money on all the licensing they do. They make money on all the titles they sell online. Yeah. They make money as a as a as a rights holder, as a console holder, as a platform. And now they'll make money selling you the games through the Windows Store or having those copies available there. And you know what? That all happens because they have a box that sits under your TV, in your living room. And it might be goofy to think of Xbox now as a a name, Xbox. Like, that was so weird. And I remember seeing also one of the, in a, in a magazine, an EGM at one point, like, remember seeing the big silver metal X system? Like, thinking that they wanted to sell you that? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, and, Microsoft's and never originally, been the best of branding, but... Uh, and and remember the the original Xbox, the original system was in the shape of an X on the top. Oh yeah, like it looked different on the front. It just had the two like the right side and the left side. And there was a little bit in the middle that didn't have a shape on it. But the left side with the disc drive and the right side, they they both went up into the different parts of the X on the top. I remember that. Yeah, it was literally so, an Xbox. Yeah. Their their branding could be goofy, and it's strange to think that the word Xbox is now a household name, but it it's happened and it's worked, and, it, and they've done it. They have a system and they have a thing that's now a, a, a thriving games business. They now have a system that allows you to buy a twenty dollar Run the Jewels pack for their new shooter Gears of War four. <laughs> so it's Microsoft being Microsoft. Yeah, and it's very goofy and American in a certain way, but. This is the first, or the Xbox in 2001 was the first American-launched console, or produced, American company produced, since the Atari Jaguar. 
another real banger of a console. Yeah, but this was a space where Japanese companies dominated, and just by launching one in and getting a foothold, all of a sudden they didn't. And that's big for what we know as the video games business now. So if you're out there listening, take a moment to remember the Xbox. Maybe dust off your old one if it's sitting in a box somewhere. Fire up some hang em high rockets only on Halo 1 <laughs> and go to town. Yeah, I, I'm coming back to the U.S. for Christmas and I might have to do that. Just to you know play through a couple of old saves and get that old Xbox out and just have some fun with it. Just saying, I've still got an Xbox with four controllers in Halo 1. We can make this happen. Yeah, we're going to have to make that happen. Perfect. All right. Well, any parting thoughts on the Xbox or can we uh, bury it back in the uh, passage of time? Oh, just a reminder that I bought an Xbox One in Japan. I'm an idiot. Yeah. But you know what? Now you have Forza 3 or Horizon 3 rather. So I have Horizon 3 and Forza 6 and probably a couple Gears games eventually as well. Yeah, we got to play some Gears. Yep. But yeah, that's it's a good little thing, and I'm glad it exists. I'm glad there's a comp- competition for Sony and for Nintendo. And in a way, I'm glad that it's a Northwest company as well. Me too. Oh, one more thing. This is also one the console thing. that had Metal Wolf Chaos, which is a Japanese-only, uh, I guess, action combat mech game where you play the vice president of the United States. Sorry, no, you're the president of the United States. The vice president mm-hmm. has seized power, and now you have to get in a mech mm-hmm. suit and take the country back from him. It's just a beautiful, bizarre game with full English voice acting and... Uh, Fortunately, the Xbox was also super moddable, so the game was very easy to play. And uh, yeah, so, you know, if you think of the Xbox, think of Halo, but also think of Metal Wolf Chaos. Can I see you in Ray's Steel Battalion? You can raise Steel Battalion any damn day of the week you want. Spencer, get in here. We need to talk about this. <laughs> Steel Battalion, another mech game, but this one more along the lines of a mech simulator. So similar to how people have full airplane cockpit setups with five different joysticks a million buttons and actual pedals this was that like you only bought the game as part of a what 200 dollars, 150 dollar pack yeah that had this just gigantic controller two pedals it had a windshield wiper button for crying out loud i remember there being an egm a two-page spread that then detailed what all the different buttons were i finally had a chance to play that game at pax one year when they had it set up and that was just you know, I, at the time, I was like, man, I can't spend $200 on a console game. This is absurd. And then I got a chance to play it like 10 years later, and I was like, man, I should have bought Steel Battalion. Well, the final joke is you, pe- you probably spent just as much on a rock band kit a few years later. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little more. A little bit more. But yeah, this if anything can be said about the xbox is that people started taking massive home run swings and even if they didn't hit then it's still amazing to see people try the babe ruth console yeah swing out of your shoes and you might hit a home run good advice for life yeah so that's i think that's all for our silicon sasquatch podcast this week yeah uh nick what's your xbox live gamer tag my xbox live gamer tag is ymog w-h-y-m-o-g and i am playing a lot of rock band 4 right now so you can uh hit me up on that there'll be some multiplayer online modes being added very soon i think so that's a that's an option waiting for that patch to come yeah also quick note uh this is our 60th podcast so you know congratulations slash thanks for listening slash we're getting aarp cards now yeah, I mean, I've been getting those in the mail for a while. It's a little bit disconcerting. Um, but Doug, hey, where can we find mm. you on Xbox Live? Xbox Live gamertag HarperDC. Have been that since 2004. Probably never going to change. Also on Twitter, probably yelling about sports at weird times of the day at Douglas Bonham. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm working on an Xbox article discussing everything we talked about here today and then some and look forward to have that out this next week as well to coincide with both our podcast and to be as timely as possible with the Xbox's anniversary. And we will be continuing to write about that and so much more. And also, don't forget, we are ramping up towards our Game of the Year. Uh, can we say feature or is, is Shit Show a better I was going to say Shit Show. Yeah, it's we don't get drunk and get wasted on a podcast like other podcasts have done in the past, but... 
Uh, if you want to hear reason debate for an hour and then four more hours of just beat them up, drag them out, knock them out, just arguments about video games from 2016, that'll be coming up in December. Absolutely. It's going to be a mess. We hope you tune in. We're going to have some guest writers on the site for the first time uh, offering up their own take on the best games of the year. It'll be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I hope you join us for what's sure to be just kind of a mess in the best a, way possible. A beautiful mess. Absolutely. Which means, Doug, we got only 20 days to play a bunch of games and figure out how we're going to rank these things. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. And Pokemon just came out. And I'm playing yes, a lot did. of Pokemon instead of all these other games. <laughs> well, at least it's better than playing a lot of FIFA instead of all these other games. Eh. Let's call it a draw. All right. Thank you for downloading and listening. We appreciate that. Please share. Please comment on our article or on Facebook, our Facebook group, our Facebook page. And thank you for the support. We love it. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week. Maybe. I don't know. Are we, are we back next week? We will be back next week. We'll figure something out. We'll do something next week. We'll see you then. Yes.